good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, our text that was read to us this morning uh, is just a small portion of the total text that we are going to cover this morning. And the reason why we only read part of it was because it is so long. Uh, As you know, we are working through a series in the book of Acts. And uh, because of the length of this book and because of the nature of narrative, uh, which is the genre of, of the book of Acts, uh, we will take some, some Sundays to cover uh, big portions in smaller amount of times. And that is the case with uh, chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11, which is what our text is uh, this morning. Uh, well, what we are going to do this morning is spend part of the time in the Word, uh, but then we do want to devote uh, the latter part of this service to... Uh, to honor Pastor Ben and Am, as this is their last Sunday with us. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to direct your attention uh, to this, this story. Now, those of you who have been with us uh, will remember that the book of Acts is teaching us that the work of Jesus continues. It didn't end in the first century. It didn't end with Jesus' death, uh, nor did it end with his resurrection, nor did it end with his ascension to heaven. Although Jesus is no longer with us in person, physically, the work that he began to bring the kingdom of God to people, it continues across all kinds of boundaries. How does it continue? It continues through his word and his spirit. His word is the message about Jesus, that is the proclamation of who he is, that is he is the son of God, the Messiah, and what he did to save us, and his spirit. When the word about Jesus is believingly received by people, they also receive the Spirit of God dwelling inside them, and that Spirit of God begins to change them, change their relationships, change their outlook, change their attitudes, change everything about them. That's how the work of Jesus continues. And this incident that we're going to look at here is another example of the same thing happening. It begins with the word being given to Cornelius, who was a Roman official in the army, and it ends with him and his family and his friends believing the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit. The the punchline, if you will, of this whole incident, you could find in chapter 11 and verse 18. So this, it takes a chapter and a half to, to get to this point, but the way all this is wrapped up, like the, the, the central point of this as it relates to the flow of the book of Acts, you find in this verse. Peter is going back to his Jewish friends in Jerusalem and is reporting to them what has happened. And he tells them, and in verse 18 it says, when they heard these things, what was their response? They fell silent, and then they glorified God, saying, and here's the punchline. Here is the main point of this whole narrative. It's this. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The thing that was so amazing, so paradigm-shifting about this story was that it revealed to the Jewish people that a person did not have to become a Jew in order to be part of God's saving plan. So that's why the emphasis here in the, in the verse is, oh, so to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was kind of like the Copernican revolution for these people. It was like the, the, the time when you realized, 
oh, so the sun shines on the other side of the earth too. It's just like, oh, I always knew that the sun shone. I just didn't think about the fact that people on the other side of the world get it too. So with, it was with these, these Jews at the time. They're like, oh, we knew, Peter, Peter knew the gospel. He had preached the gospel. In fact, in chapter 2, after giving this, this first great Christian proclamation, he says, this promise is for you and for your children, speaking to Jews, and for everyone whom the Lord is calling to himself. But it wasn't until this moment that the people finally realized, ah, even non-Jews can come and receive God's salvation and have, can have repentance that leads to life without becoming Jews. That was, that's the punchline, the, the main point of this. Now, because this is such a lengthy passage and because it is so multifaceted, it's kind of, I, I, I like to think of a passage like this as a big mansion, a uh, beautiful mansion, and you can look at it from a variety of angles, but you have to choose at some point which angle you're going to look at it from. And what I want to do this morning is look at it from this angle. What factors are at work when someone is converted? What, what factors are at work when someone is converted? Because the essence of what happens here is Cornelius, who is this Roman centurion, he and his family and friends or people gathered at his home, they were converted. They, they, were, they, they repented of their sin and they believed the message, the good news about Jesus. And what I want to look at is, is what, are, what factors are at work in conversion when someone is converted? Now, because of the time, we're all going to look at two of the factors. There are other factors, but we're just going to look at, at two. But before we do, I think it would be helpful for us to take a big step back and ask the question, why is this even important at all? Because I think often it can seem, especially in times like this, it can seem when we go back to a book that was written, a, a passage that was written almost 2,000 years ago, about an event, uh, about someone in an empire that doesn't even exist anymore, we can think, I wonder if this is really relevant to us. Is this really relevant to us at a time when Russian missiles are blasting into residential apartments in Ukraine? Is this really relevant to us when inflation is going up and when the housing market is going bonkers? Is a passage like this really relevant to us when you are facing the crises that you are facing right now, when you have that, there's a load on your heart. There's some burden on your mind right now. There's something that, that the, the moment you, you sit down and just start like not, not engaging yourself that your mind is just going to drift to. And the question I want to ask is, is, is something like this, does it have anything to do with all these things that are, are going on? Maybe you'd say, well, if we really want to be relevant, we should talk about the, what the United States approach should be to this, this foreign disaster or, or how to help me with the situation that I'm, I'm encountering or how to deal with our finances. But, but if we will consider this and ask this question, what is, what is the underlying cause for all these, these effects, these symptoms? What's beneath the surface, beneath these conflicts, beneath the anxiety that you're facing? Is there some common denominator? And if we look at the Bible's answer on this, we'll discover that these all are the inflamed, throbbing, swollen symptoms of the problem that faces every human being and permeates every relationship, and that is our need to be at peace with God. 
I mean, behind all these conflicts, behind every problem that has plagued the human race ever since the very beginning, when Adam and Eve chose to live life separately from God, chose to put themselves at the center of the universe, the things that have spun out of control and the need that we have seen is a need for this. How can we put right, be put right with God? How can a human being be made right with God? But that is exactly the issue that's being addressed in this passage. After all, in the scripture that was read to you, this is from verse 36, of chapter 10, Peter is saying, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is the very heart of the problem. So no, the importance of the things that are facing us on the foreign scene, the importance of the problem that's upon your heart right now, does not outshine the relevance of this lesson here. It actually helps you see it within its proper framework. All these problems, all these things are symptoms of a deeper problem, a problem that has always plagued human beings, and that is how can we find, how can we be at peace with God? How can a person be converted? How can a person be changed? How can a person be realigned from putting themselves at the center of their universe and putting themselves in their proper relationship to their creator? That's what this is all about. And so this message is relevant, the factors that go into someone's conversion. It's, it's, it's relevant for you if you're not converted, which you may be here this, this morning and you're like, I'm kind of wanting to learn about these things without jumping in because I don't know fully what Christianity is. I'm trying to find out. So, so it could be that you would say, well, I, I'm not converted or I don't even know what that means. And I'll explain it uh, in a moment, or it could be that there is someone that you're burdened that would be converted, or, and this could be true of all of, of many of us, that we need to live converted lives. So what are the factors that go in to conversion? Well, first of all, in conversion, I'm going to give you just two factors. Uh, in conversion, there's someone that takes the initiative, and there's someone that bears the message. Okay, that's all the time that we'll have for uh, this morning. In conversion, there is someone who takes the initiative. That's first of all. So look at this in verse uh, chapter 11 and verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice they didn't say this. Oh, we understand now. So the Gentiles have found a way to God too. You see the difference? They didn't say, oh, the Gentiles, have, have, that is the non-Jews, have found some way to climb their way up to God or to achieve a right standing with God. No, they said this. They said, God has granted to the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, repentance that leads to life. You see, they're recognizing that when it comes to conversion, when it comes to someone facing this way in their, in their, in their self-centeredness and in, in, in godlessness and, and, and turning this way toward, to embracing uh, faith in Jesus Christ, that is something in which God must take the initiative. Now, I want to deal with a couple objections to this. God takes the initiative in conversion. You may say, wait just a second. I, I know, and if you've read this passage, you might know something about Cornelius that I want to point to in chapter 10. You might say, wait, wait, wasn't it Cornelius who took the initiative with God? I'm telling you, what I'm saying is that one of the factors that are at work in conversion is God takes the initiative. But if we'll look at verse uh, 2 of chapter 10, it says, Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave, al gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. You might say, well, look at this. Cornelius was taking the initiative with God. It seems as if he was, as it were, meriting God's attention. And yet you're telling me that in conversion, it is God who takes the initiative. 
it, it, it's very interesting here. Luke, the, the author of this, of this book, is concerned to point out these four evidences that Cornelius was a very religious man. It says that he's devout. He was a pious man. He even goes so far as to say that he feared God. And his piety and his fear of God was not just something intellectual. It was something he put, he put, uh, he put his feet to it. I mean, he gave to the poor and he would pray. And you might think, well, it seems here is a guy who's actually taking the initiative with God. But if you'll notice, all of those religious activities would have gone absolutely nowhere unless God had actually prompted Cornelius to send for Peter to hear the gospel, to hear the good news about Jesus. It, it, is, it, is, it is so much the case, not the case that it is Cornelius who is earning or anything or taking the initiative that we could even say, apart from, all, apart from God's taking the initiative in Cornelius' life, he would have gone along a pathway of assuming that his piety, that his giving to charity, that his prayers could earn his way to God when in fact, no, God had to intervene and take the initiative with Cornelius. But you may object from another perspective and say, well, this seems like a very dim view of human, of human nature to say that if anybody is going to have a right relationship with God, they cannot achieve it on their own. God must be the one who takes the initiative. And after all, don't we look around us and we see people doing very good things? You know, it is true, if you just, you can see this so easily, it's true when you observe human nature, everybody has a religious bent to them even people that say that they're very irreligious. Everyone has a way of trying to uh, validate what they're doing, how they vote, the, uh, the decisions they make with some sort of moral con condition, uh, some sort of moral conviction. They're, they're trying to say, I, I did this because, and then they present some sort of uh, good moral reason. We have this, this religious bent, and, and we see everybody doing this, uh, this kind of thing. And if the Bible tells us that no one is really seeking after God, then what are they doing? If it's not God that they're seeking after, what are they seeking after? Here's what we're doing. We have this, we have this understanding that there is something above us, that there's, there's someone to whom we'll give an account, that there's some force greater than ourselves, but unless there's some intervention to, un to open our eyes, we're always going to misunderstand what that is, and we're always going to create a God that we can manage, a God that is somehow shaped in our image. But the God that reveals to us to himself in the Bible is a God that will not be boxed in. He will not be managed by us. He, he comes to us as God totally different than we are. Not to be managed, not to be controlled, not to be reimagined. I mean, you think about it. What does it, what does it take for someone to truly come to salvation? The, the, the things that are required of a, people to, of a person to realize, uh, the things that someone has to realize are so mind-blowing that they could not happen unless God intervened to make them happen. For example, a person, a person in order to come to salvation must realize that he or she is so much more flawed than he or she ever thought. This is what must take place before someone can be converted. A person has to come to the point of realizing, whoa, I knew I, was a, I knew I was a person who messed up. I knew I was a really flawed person, but I didn't realize I was that bad. 
I didn't realize my condition was that severe that someone had to die on a cross to, to save me from my sin. Have you ever encountered someone and, and you're trying to, do uh, you, you ever know someone and you're trying to convince them of something about themselves and you know they'll never believe it? You, you know that if you, if you there, there's someone, maybe they're really stubborn in a certain way or maybe they're really proud or maybe they have a certain perspective and, and you've talked with them and you know, if I try to tell them that about themselves, they'll never believe me because they're going to turn on me. In fact, if I try to approach that person about this issue, they're probably going to call, they're gonna, probably going to call me out and say, I'm the one who's wrong. You know anybody like that? Please don't raise your hand. But, but I think we all can, we all know someone like that. The Bible indicates that that's us. That we're, we're, supposed, we're being told that our, our sin makes us so guilty that we deserve an internal separation from God. How could anybody believe that? And yet, on the other hand, the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, is good news. It tells us that we are far more loved than we can even imagine. And, and have you ever tried to convince someone that they are loved and they have such self-loathing that they can't believe it? That's us too. And yet the gospel blows out both ends of our minds by telling us that, yes, we are in such a tragic condition. We are so deeply flawed that it took nothing less than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he did die, and he was raised for our salvation. I mean, this is such good news that it requires nothing less than God shining a light into our hearts to illumine us to believe. See, God, if anyone's going to be converted, this is the point of this, if anyone's going to be converted, God must take the initiative. We love him because what? He first loved us. It wasn't that the world so loved God that they began to work their way toward him. It was that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was not that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we found some way to resuscitate ourselves. It was rather this in Ephesians 2, while we were dead in trespasses and sins, God, he was the one who raised us up. Salvation, as Jonah says in chapter 2, verse 9, when he's in the belly of the fish, salvation is of the Lord. Completely, 100%. If anyone's going to take, is, if anyone's going to be converted, God takes the initiative. Now, what do we do that with this, with this truth? What do we do with this truth that was proclaimed so clearly by these Jews in Jerusalem and realized, oh, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance leading to life? Well, there are a few things that I want us to encourage us with based on this first point. One is this. Religion never got anybody closer to God. Religion never saved anybody. Cornelius was a religious man. And yet he would be told that his religious activities were insufficient when he would stand before the judge of all the earth. Peter is going to tell him in just a few days. In just a few days from then, Peter is going to tell him that there is a judge, he, there's someone who's going to judge the living and the dead, and he's not going to judge you based on how much money you gave to the poor, and he's not going to judge you based on, on what, how long you prayed. He's not going to judge you on whether you are considered a pious or God-fearing person. He's going to judge you based on one thing and one thing alone. Did you trust him? Religion never, never got anybody right with God. There's another thing that, that we should take away from that and from this truth, and that is this. If 
you, if you have loved ones, that you want them to be converted. You want them to be granted repentance that leads to life. You must pray for them. You know that God must take the initiative in their lives, so pray. Moms and dads of children, do you pray for your kids? Do you pray that they would come to know him whom to know is life eternal? Do you pray that God would stir in their hearts so they would come to see that they are loved by God and they do need to turn to him? Pray for your loved ones. And third, if you do not know for certain that you have been, that you have eternal life, that you have been converted, and you are sensing some tug on your heart, some pull of God, I mean, you're, he you're hearing the sound of my voice right now. You're either online or you're watching online or you're in this, in this room. This is no coincidence. Please do not ignore that. Please do not ignore if there is a tug on your heart to, to, that, that something is happening, something is drawing you to faith in this, in this peasant from Nazareth who was crucified uh, under Pontius Pilate and then rose again, and something is tugging your heart to put all your trust in and your full identity in him. Don't ignore that because God, God is working in your heart to draw you to him. In conversion, when someone is converted, it is God who takes the initiative. Here's the second factor, second factor at play. First of all, let me just leave to it this, this way. We could, you could go away with the impression after hearing this first point that, okay, there's nothing for me to do. God has to take the initiative. God is the one that tugs on a person's heart. God is the one that grants repentance that leads to life. Uh, and you told me I pray, and I'm not quite sure about that because if it's all up to God, then what does prayer have to do with it? But in the mystery of God's beautiful providence, God uses people. So, in conversion, when someone is converted, God takes the initiative, but someone bears the message. Someone bears the message. And that's what we learn here in this passage. And the person to bear the message is, of course, Peter. Is Peter. If you'll look at verse 9 of chapter 10, uh, we, are in, we are reintroduced to Peter who we find on this, this, the flat house top of, of a, a Mediterranean home. They were, they were shaped that way. And probably from that house top, Peter could see the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, he might have even seen the, the sails of boats uh, fishing along the, uh, the, the sea there. And yet he fell into a trance. And in that trance, God was communicating something to him. Th there was this, and th this is, if we had read the passage, I... I uh, but I'll, I'll summarize it for you. Um, there's this big sheet comes down. Uh, it, it may have even been like a sail in, in Peter's, Peter's vision. And all kinds of animals are in this, in this sail. There, there are, in this big sheet, there are animals that are clean and unclean. Animals that, that is, animals that Jews were allowed to eat and animals that Jews could never eat, were not allowed to eat. And God is trying to show Peter something. He's trying to show Peter that the old distinctions the old boundaries between Jews and non-Jews that, that set apart the Jews as the only ones that God would save. Those boundaries are being erased. God says to Peter, this voice comes and says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, never, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And it happens three times. So Peter is given this vision. And then he gets these visitors 
The visitors, visitors come to the house from Cornelius, and they say, uh, Peter, you're not the only one who's out of vision. Our master, Cornelius, he's also had a vision, and he's been told to, uh, to send to uh, Joppa to get Peter and let him and bring him uh, to us because he has a message to proclaim to us. So Peter is the messenger in this uh, conversion incident. Now, I want to tell you what is not unusual about this, what is unusual about this, and what we could learn from it. First of all, it strikes us as completely natural that Peter would be the one that God sends to talk to Cornelius about this. After all, Peter had established himself as a leader of the, uh, the, the Christians. He was kind of a spokesperson of the apostles. And uh, so it had been natural for him to be the one to bear the, the, the good news to this Gentile uh, official and then to report back to Jerusalem, God has granted repentance leading to life even to these, these non-Jews, even to these Gentiles. So that makes perfect sense. Peter, by, by nature of his personality, by nature of his stature among the other apostles, he would have made a fitting choice. But from another perspective, this is really unusual. Because, first of all, in Cornelius' vision, uh, actually, it's, it's not just a, a vision. Look at this. Uh, well, it is a vision. <laughs> Sorry. Look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. So, so Cornelius already gets this word from an angel. And if you flip over to chapter 11 and look at Peter's summary of this in verse 13, look at Peter's summary of this, what's going on here. He told us how he, this is chapter 11, verse 13, he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. And the question I'm wondering is this, why couldn't the angel have just told him? He was right there. Why? Here, here God goes to the trouble of sending an angel, and the angel is saying, you need to go to the trouble of finding Peter because Peter is going to tell you a message. Could we have not have been a little more efficient here and just had the angel tell the message? Okay, the, here, that's why I say there's something, there's something uh, totally understandable, totally sensible about that. Peter, okay, leader of the apostles, a spokesperson, uh, and yet something unusual going on here. Why a human and not the angel? Something even more unusual. Why such a flawed human? Because, yes, Peter is, a, is a, a sensible choice to be the one to carry this message to Cornelius. But when you remember some things about Peter, you realize, man, this guy's a really flawed individual. And I think Luke wants to remind us of Peter's flaws when Peter said, never, Lord. Now, if you know, if you know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you remember that this isn't the first time Peter has said, never, Lord. In Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus had revealed to his disciples, he had said of them, I am going to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus said, I am going to be handed over to the secular uh, rulers and I'm going to be crucified and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, never, Lord. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Later on in the upper room, Jesus, in an act of great humility and service, laid aside his outer robes, put on a servant's towel, knelt down, got a wash basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet. When he came to Peter, Peter tucks his feet up under his robe and says, Never, Lord. 
Later on that evening, Jesus said to his disciples, you're all going to fall away because of me. You're all going to be so ashamed of me. You're all going to leave me. And Peter says, even though they leave you, I'm not going to leave you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, the, the, the rooster will not crow before you have denied me three times. And Peter said, I'm never going to deny you. Never, Lord. And he did. See, what's unusual about this is that not only that God sent a human being and not a brilliant, terror-inspiring angel, but he sent a human being who is so deeply flawed. And furthermore, it was not just a human being who's so deeply flawed. It was a human being, it was a flawed human being whose understanding of the gospel needed to be expanded. I mean, yes, Peter had preached at Pentecost. He had proclaimed to people that Jesus is the Messiah, that you can trust in him for salvation. And yet there was something narrow about Peter's understanding of the gospel. So not only was it, was a, it was a human being, it was a flawed human being, it was a human being whose understanding of the gospel was not sufficiently broadened, not sufficiently clarified, and yet God was using him as the great turning point in the narrative of the book of Acts to give the gospel to Cornelius and his house so that the gospel would break beyond the strictures of the Jewish lands and go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth? Why does God use flawed human beings to proclaim his grace? And the answer is this. God uses people who have experienced his grace to share his grace. God uses people like you and me, so deeply flawed, so deeply broken, in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of all our flaws, he uses us to, sh to be trophies of his grace. Yes, he could have he spoken through an angel, but an angel had no need to repent of his sin. An angel would not have known that the thrill of having first been covered with sin like slime and having all that be washed away and being able to say, Jesus saved me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God uses people who have experienced his grace to share his grace. He always works that way. And you may be wondering this morning, why is it that I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing right now? Why do I have this physical limitation? Why am I in this relational crisis? Why did that thing last week have to happen to me? Why do I bear that scar from so many years ago? Why does that feeling of guilt come into my mind every time I see that person? Why do we have such conflict? Why are there things going on? Why do I bear these scars? Here's the reason. God wants to make you a trophy of his grace. You may say, I, I, I get that because I believe that one day after I get out of this trial, I will be able to tell other people, yeah, I didn't understand it at the time, but suddenly it made sense. No, 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 no. It's in your weakness, not after your weakness. It's in your trial that God shows us grace, not after your trial. You may never understand all the reasons right now, but that should not keep you from being able to say, yes, I'm a sinner, but he's a greater savior. Paul may have never understood the precise reasons why God gave him a thorn in the flesh, but he knew this. God reassured him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? Not your strength, but in your weakness. God used Peter. God uses flawed messengers to carry his amazing message of salvation.
factors at work in conversion. Someone takes the initiative. God does. Someone bears the message. Flawed people like you and me. My friend, is there someone who needs to hear more about God's grace from you? Have you always thought that your trial right now is somehow barring you from being able to share God's grace with other people? Oh no, my friend. You can speak with a voice so powerfully to other people because God is changing you through this. And finally, we see the message. We see the messenger and the message. And I'll deal with this briefly. Peter's sermon was the, the thing that was read to you. It could have been an abbreviated uh, a version of what was said there at the moment. But it, it, it contains all the classic elements of pre the presentation of the gospel. You have the historical events. You have the facts, the historical events. Uh, you have their meaning, and you have the response. The facts Peter spends most of the time talking about, and he indicates that Cornelius and his family and friends gathered there uh, that day already knew something about them. He, he said, you know that Jesus was a man who performed great miracles. He taught. God's spirit was upon him, allowing him uh, to reverse the effects of sin in people's lives. Yes, that was going on. Jesus was the person who lived the life every human being ought to live. He, Jesus was a person, this is Peter's point, he's the person that, that lived the life everybody should live, and yet he died the death that a criminal deserves. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was impaled upon a, a T-shaped piece of wood. He was whipped and mocked by Roman soldiers. No one wants to die a death like that. No one should have to die, die, die a death like that who lived such a life as Jesus Christ, but he did. And you know, if he had died, if he had just stayed that way, that would have been a fitting end of, of a life had he been an imposter. And yet three days later, God raised him up. And you know what that means? That means that now Jesus is, he really is everything he said he was. He really is the son of God. He really is the Messiah. He really is the way and the truth and the life. And you know what Peter is presenting to the, his audience here? He's saying, you know what that means? It means that one day you will stand before him because he's gonna judge the living and the dead. Now there is something, depending on how you look at this, at the very end, look at verse 243. Uh, verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify, what is this message that they're testifying? That Jesus, the, the Messiah, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, depending on how you look at that, that could be extremely terrifying or comforting. It's terrifying if all you think about is the fact that one day you will stand before a judge. But if you look at it this way, but that judge bears wounds of love for me. And if you look at it that way, that's called faith in Jesus. And it is that way in which Peter's audience that day decided to look at it. They, they believed. They, they received that message, and immediately as they received that message, God did what he promised to do for people who believed in him. He gives them his Holy Spirit, and the evidence of that time of God's Holy Spirit was the fact that they spoke in tongues, and Peter sees what's going on. He says, can we withhold baptism from those to whom God has poured out his Holy Spirit? And so they were baptized that very day. There we see conversion. 
There we see God taking the initiative to bring a man who was, yes, religious, but his religion would not save him to believe a message that he needed to hear. And he believed. And he was saved. And the conclusion, as Peter brought back the news to the people in Jerusalem, the conclusion that they arrived to was this great pivot in the book of Acts. So God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles. My friends, that's you and me. I said at the beginning, this message is for those who need to be converted. Could That could be you who are praying for someone to be converted, who need to live converted lives, growing in our grasp and understanding of the gospel. Would you pray? Would you bow your heads to pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the way that you work in our lives. Thank you for the way that you have taken initiative, initiative with me as a young boy to trust in you and for the way that you have taken the initiative in the lives of so many people here. And I pray for anyone who has not come to understand who Jesus is, that they would do that believingly, trustingly today. And we pray this in Jesus' name.